Hello and welcome to what is now Season 5 of Pebble in the Pond podcast. My name is Sam Stewart and I am the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year, ANZMHA hosts several leading mental health conferences which give us the opportunity to connect with incredible industry leaders, lived experience speakers, researchers, academics and frontline workers as they share fascinating stories and projects which are changing the face of mental health within our community. Listen in as we go one-on-one with these inspiring people and dive deep into their work. It is truly a privilege to bring you their stories. Our podcast episodes may contain content which could be triggering for some people. If you need support, please contact Lifeline on 131114 or visit the Get Help page on anzmh.asn.au. Join us for Pebble in the Pond each Tuesday and let's get into Season 5. Karen is a seasoned director in transformation, stakeholder engagement, human-centered design, communications, and business strategy. She's also the partnerships director at Today, which is a strategic design agency focused on purpose-based problem-solving projects. In this this episode, Karen talks about the process and facilitation of co-design, the resources needed and the roles and responsibilities of a co-design project, and how the organizational support helps the planning stage move forward is so important. We learn the skills behind the design of a co-design project, how structure uh, and process go hand in hand with the organisational support, and each are equally essential to move teams and ideas forward. Enjoy listening to this interesting episode with Karen now. Karen, thanks so much for agreeing to come and have a chat with me and spend some time and share your story with our listeners. Thanks, Sam. Let's talk about not where you are today, but what got you to where you are today. Where did it all start for you as far as your interest in what you're doing? Very, very long time ago, I was in marketing. And in marketing, you learn about people's needs and then how to meet them. But usually the outcome is to service an organisational's desire to, to win and to make more money. And over after a decade of being in that space, I realised that what I was really good at doing was understanding how to meet needs and how to get people internally to work together to be able to then deliver better customer experiences externally out of outside the building. But then, of course, I think as a lot of people do in this, in moving into the for-purpose space, they realise that selling selling your own soul isn't very, it's not very motivating. And that led me to move into the health space and to really take my communication and marketing skills and understanding how to meet people's needs and and design better experiences to take that skill set, to take my evil skill set. And, and turn it for the use of good. It, so it, I moved into the health space. It's an important skill set, though, that you just mentioned that you have, to be able to bring a team together internally to create a, an amazing experience for those people externally, like to get people on the same page and really try and pick the, the strengths out of each of them and try and get everyone together and build around that. I mean, that's, that's quite, quite a great skill set to have. I think that when... I don't know that I realized it was a skill set till a few times when I did it and then you leave an organization and maybe the thing doesn't move forward. Right. Um, and then that's when you realize that it is a skill set to get people to collaborate, to get them to hold together and to work in partnership with each other through often change, you know, if something's different and it's uncomfortable to get them to sort of align on a goal, work out the process, stick to the process and deliver the outcomes or, you know, move through sometimes, you know, conflict 
Yeah. So yeah, it is a skill. And I think that then when I moved into health, I first worked at the Liver Newton-John Cancer Research Institute, which was newly formed and part of Austin Health and the Wellness Centre. And so I worked across two organisations and three different disciplines of research, wellness and the clinical space. So it was really, I guess, where that opportunity to bring people together across organisations to meet the needs of, in this case, patients to help them have better lives really came into the fore to get you know a clinician and a researcher and, yeah. and people in allied health and wellness to see eye to eye and, and to work towards the same better outcome. It was quite challenging but also quite rewarding. I can see as you talk about it lighting you up. I mean, obviously, it's clearly something you're passionate about. We talk a lot in mental health about bringing people together to collaborate and yeah, try and work together. What what do you think are the key ingredients to making that a successful outcome in your experience? I think that it's the same in every space, not just in the mental health space, which is to have a really clear alignment on the value you can create together that you may not independently be able to create alone. And to have a shared purpose. So especially in, the, in systems or in health where, a, a, you know, a consumer, a customer journey moves from potentially, you know, service to service, prevention through to acute care, they're, they're going to pass through different stages, different moments and often different organisations. But ultimately, those moments and organisations should fit together to improve that person's life and to help care for that person. And so if partners can come together and really share a clear purpose and understand what value they add into delivering on that purpose and those outcomes, then they've got a really good basis for a strong working relationship. And then there's lots of other things that play into that. So having really clear roles and responsibilities, really strong communication and collaboration skills and systems to support that. And also, I guess, an agreement on how you will resolve conflict, which will ultimately ultimately arise. So those a lot of what I've just talked about as well feels a little bit like marriage. I think any yeah. relationship has the same kind of principles behind it for success. Yeah, that's a very good distinction you make. I think uh, when you look at when you moved into the space of mental health out, or the health sector to try and create better outcomes for people, did you go there thinking that this was possible with what you're up to? I mean, because I'm assuming it didn't start where you are right now. You never started with that, did you? Or was it something that has evolved as you've been in this space? I think what really surprised me was when I worked in the hospital and funding's always, you know, having enough money to do what you need to do is, is really interesting in the health space because there's a lot of organisations that, you know, are funded by the government and then other organisations that are private and other ones that get funding from, you know, grants and things like that. And so I, I assumed that there was more business models or business thinking and kind of how that would work and that, that that idea of like what's the experience we're trying to deliver and what are the outcomes both for them but for the for the organization and I had a conversation with my medical director and I took him to the front door and I was like okay but what's our strategy for out there and he's like what do you mean and I said well I know we know what we're doing in here but what are we doing when that person that that patient leaves like what are we doing to support them then because obviously it's the rest of their lives that they're in this case going to you know have to deal with having had cancer or recovering from cancer so what do we do then he's like well that's not our job that's not our responsibility we don't do that and I just felt I just couldn't it took me a while to grasp that these amazingly smart individuals that care so much like like literally they save lives yeah didn't have any didn't feel they had a responsibility or didn't have a way 
of connecting with other organisations to sort of to connect that person's journey and to, to keep caring for them. And so I, I think that was probably that first moment for me where I realised that there was a skill set missing in the health system around communication, around experience design and, and also what's now brought me to, to you know, work in a design agency, service design and really being human-centred in thinking about how to design a better experience it really surprised me when I realised that wasn't part of our health system and, you know, that is what took me to working on the My Health Record program and working in that implementation role to look at it, the customer experience and communication and community engagement because I just saw such an opportunity to, I guess, start to connect, connect the system by getting people across organisations to work together better to provide better experiences. And that also internally to get departments just to talk to each other. Yeah. <laughs> seems simple. It seems simple, doesn't it? But yet it's, it happens over and over again in, in institutions, in governments, in all states, territories. It seems to be a common theme, doesn't it? I mean, it seems so simple, but yet actually doing it seems to be something that's either takes initiative or something that takes extra work that no one's willing to, to do. Yeah, I think that. You know, people do, I think there's a lot of aspiration in lots of organisations to do, to, to make people's lives better, but they also have boundaries on what they can do in their day right. and what they're responsible for and what they have power to control. Yeah. And then there are other forces within our systems like competition. So, you know, you know, if you have yeah. organisations that are competing for money, but they're supposed to also care for the same person along the journey, it's, it's a fair tension to manage and you know what you can do is what you can individually do and as an organization do so you know coming back to that door analogy I I mentioned before there is you know there's a gap between the doors of organizations and the question is whose responsibility is it to fill it whose responsibility it is to go across and say hey we could improve this together and I do think that's why government needs to play that role to lead that, at least in terms of in the reform space and to use the different levers they have thinking about different partnership models, seeing that in the New South Wales government with some of the grant programs they've got in, in different digital spaces. And they're looking at that at the moment out of the Victorian Royal Commission into Mental Health, so how to get partners to work together to deliver better outcomes. So, yeah, I could ramble now, Sam, but I won't. No, no, I think it's really exciting. And I think the opportunity here that's in front of us is quite amazing if we can get the right people to be talking to each other because it makes sense, doesn't it? It's just trying to, like you say, who, whose job is it? And, and to be fair, when you mentioned before where they you know, post-care, like what happens after they do their job, then it's almost like not, not because they don't, care about the person obviously but they're just like our job's done that's it that's where we stop someone else must start at some point good luck you know rather than a designed a user designed experience that you're speaking about because i mean a business in any industry would go through that process wouldn't they yeah yeah I the mean, journey I, of their customer or their client that's it and i and i think that you know that's why in the commercial space you see businesses start to look at adjacent opportunities you know, where they say, oh, well, they know us here. What if we put in a service before that or after that? And you see that kind of thinking and that's how they, they take share of market. And you start, you start to see that in, you know, 
some of the bigger mental health non-government organisations, you start to see them have and offer more support so they can, within their organisation, create a connected journey but there's still more opportunity and and there are some good examples of where organizations are starting to integrate so yeah I think that having a willingness to collaborate around a shared purpose which lots of organizations do have because their their goal is to care for people and to help them have better lives so I think you can the system can leverage that government can leverage that and I do think (laughs) I think this is very maybe a utopian vision, but I, th- I think that good things are worth funding. Usually if something's, if there's a good outcome, it's, it's worth putting money behind to test it, to trial it. Whereas at the moment, I think a lot of this stuff is people are trying to do it without that, uh, that funding. To, and then right. of course it falls over because people don't have the capacity or the, the capability to keep, you know. What you say there is logical out. though, isn't it? Yeah. Good ideas deserve funding to give it a go. Yeah. Which seems elementary, but, <laughs> but it's hard, isn't it? Yeah, I think as well, you know, we have a system, a mental health system, a healthcare system that funds acute care over preventative care. I think that has a lot to do with political cycles. Yes. And you're not going to see the outcomes of prevention in a four-year term. Um, but also you may never really see, you know, the person that had the health issue prevented we'll never say thank you for saving my life because nothing ever went wrong. So I think it's a really interesting kind of way of thinking about where does the funding go to because the urgent, the acute, the, ex- the expertise tends to fall into the clinical or the medical model and all the, that's the way it's currently perceived, it's the way it's currently funded and, you know, that's probably the big thing to see in the mental health space is to really start to think about the psychosocial model and that is prevention and it's also recovery and no more important than now coming out of a COVID and, you know, especially with young people, like there's some areas where we've really got to start to think, you know, the acute model, it, it's, it's become too late if people are in an acute model. We should, yeah. have, we should have been solving the problem earlier. When you mention mental health systems broken, are we talking about fractured, segmented, not collaborative? Is that what we mean by that? In Victoria, the Royal Commission, I'm unsure about other states. I mean, I yeah. know that at a, at a national level there's only just been an agreement for federal government and, and state governments, which is called a coalition of governments, to form. So I'll just speak to Victoria. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Royal Commission said the system is broken. Another way to say it, I guess, is I was presenting once with a nurse when I was working on my health record, and this wasn't related to the mental health system, but I think it's it's really applicable. She said... At the moment, the only continuity in your care is you. That you. You're the one that needs to support yourself. You're the one that needs to find the answer. You're the one that needs to go and find the next carer right. um, or the next service. So it's up to the individual and for them to know what, what they need when they need it. Yeah. Which most people you know, in that position probably aren't in the mindset to actually know what's going on. Or where yeah, that's go. right. And I think that's the you – know, the, on the mental, you know, a continuum from starting to know that you feel like there's something not right, that at that point you really need to be able to access the right levels of information and people that can help you to understand what's going on. And by the time you get to the point where you're presenting an emergency, as you say, you're probably not in the best position to be able to tell other people what you need. And so there's there's a real opportunity within 
the system, which, you know, the Victorian Royal Commission has 65 recommendations. So, yeah. you know, that, that range from redesigning the funding to whole new services and even interdigital. Lived experience. Yeah, lived experience workforce. And that, you know, coming to co-design, about a third of the Royal Commission recommendations say this, these, this, this reform needs to occur via co-design. So bringing people with lived experience into the process to design the services, the systems, the products, the models of care that will meet their needs. And that was my next question was what co-design meant to you, which obviously you just mentioned that. Because, I mean, it's, you, you don't want it to be just a word they use with co-design and, and we sort of, yeah, yeah, everyone's a part of it. And, but you really want it to be authentic and meaningful. And so do you feel like they're on the path to having that voice and that opportunity? Yeah, I think there's a real – it's nothing quite like a government signing off on a real commission and to say this is what we're doing. We, you know, we've, we've accepted every recommendation to, I guess, force change. And with that change, you know, it's a change of, of culture and mindsets as a, a requirement for increased capability. I know the department have set up, you know, they've brought lived experience into their workforce. They are the part of the partnership we have them is to really think about how do you, how do you deliver participatory approaches from, you know, human-centred design through to co-design and even through to co-production that are genuine, as you say, that are authentic and really one of the key stages, and that's what we're, we, you know, we're talking about at the moment is co-planning. So being prepared and ready to go into co-design, not, it's, not a, it's an easy word to say. <laughs> a lot of people use it to describe a workshop. It's not. Bringing together people with different experience to solve challenges together when, when historically, at least in the, in the mental health system, the people we're bringing together had an imbalance of power and the people with lived experience may perceive that the other person with that, you know, the provider expertise may be not the individual but the representative of a system that caused their, some of the lived experience and the trauma of that system. So it is quite a sensitive space. It's, people bring a lot of vulnerability in and it's really important to plan for safe experiences and then also to empower people to, you know, participate to feel creative to walk out we have some great experiences of people walking out feeling feeling like they've really really helped change something that they've made a difference we had a a, a 72 year old lady come and drop off some of her ideas and her materials we'd sent her a kit to do some things in between co-design and she was just so excited she's like I just feel so you know she, she just felt like she learned something new she's like I can't believe at 72 that I'm doing this you know I've cared she she was a carer she'd cared for her son for many years he had severe mental health illness and so for her it was a really just such an empowering process and you know potentially a new career also because we, we were like well do you want to, would you like to participate more and so, yes, yeah, so there's lots of really wow. good outcomes from co-design and in, in a way it's like a little incubator for what the system should be in the future where people with lived experience are working alongside people that have their subject matter expertise, whether that's psychosocial or clinical, to, to deliver the services, to evaluate them, to iterate on that design. And is co when we say co-design or co-planning, is co-planning come first, then co-design and then co-production? So co-productions, I guess, like the overall encompassing concept that okay. if you thought of it as a circle, you'd say, well, you co-plan, 
you then co-design, you then co-deliver, and then you co-evaluate. Right. So co-planning does come before co-design by, you know, you need to plan really well before you go into co-design, especially if you're bringing people with lived experience in with really diverse backgrounds who may have experienced trauma. Yes. It's also about co-planning stages, about really setting the conditions for the organisation and understanding if co-design is even an appropriate thing to do. The reason for that, really key reason, co-planning and setting those organisational conditions is important is because within co-design you are expected to share power and and share decision-making. So it means that what comes out of co-design should be a decision that the organisation then says, yes, we'll do that. So, you know, you can have a really, in the planning stage, you need to be really clear on what is, what can be designed, what is the scope or the mm. boundaries of, of what can be changed. And then you also need to be, have the organisational support for the decisions that come out of co-design to, to move forward. And there's nothing quite like everyone being excited, coming up with some great solutions, and then it goes back into the organisation and nothing happens yeah. or they never hear ever again what happened with their time. Um, Does that happen often? It's not happening in the process that we're running at the moment with the okay. department because they, at least in the, the reform process, because, because they've put a, a huge amount of time and effort into the planning. I yeah. think that in historically probably in, in my experience in working in organisations and in, 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 even in government, it does happen. Yes. And that I think is because there's a very often a very you know brave and a brave team that's really optimistic that wants to co-design and wants to bring the voice of lived experience in, but that they don't necessarily have the structure or the process or the the buy-in to take that forward, and that that's when they're then hit by people saying, "Oh, that's not feasible, or that's not possible, or we can't afford it," and so then that's when you know status quo. It's a waste of time. Well, and I think that's the real danger, and that's the reason why you need, and or you need the organisation to be understanding what is yeah. true co-design. What are you telling people? What are you promising people? Because you'll erode trust, and you waste time if yeah. it's not genuine. And it's okay if you don't, if you're not, if you're not able to share that power. If you're not, if you're not, if you're wanting that team to make recommendations, not decisions, you can just be really clear on that. So you can. There are other design approaches that allow you to listen and to take on board people's ideas, to come up with new solutions and test them with people without necessarily getting, giving them decision-making power. And that's really looking at like the IPA2 participation spectrum and just saying, where are we at on this? Like, where are we and where will we genuinely be able to shift to? And what power can we share? You know, one of the good examples in the mental health system around what power can we share that is a, is a very live conversation is around can people with lived experience make decisions around clinical processes where there's medical liability involved? And so there's some really yeah. high risks and high stakes that need to be discussed and need to be considered because the consequence of a new idea that is in, implemented into a clinical environment it could be could be life and death in some situations. Yeah. So, And that's sort of what we hear back as well in terms of that's why it's also really important to have people with the, the expertise of the service implementation or the, the product implementation in the room so that they can bring that subject matter expertise and not necessarily say no, but say, you know, how might we and what do we have to consider? So who else do you want at the table then to make sure that you get all the voices? Because 
Would you want senior management involved so at least you can't then just they go back or whatever and then all of a sudden they're like, well, you know what, appreciate this, it's been good but not going to happen, costs through the roof, don't have the funding. I think thinking about who is at the core, who is in the team is a really important part of that planning process. Mm. It is really important that the core team is able to make decisions or able to at least know that they've got support of their organisation to take those decisions forward or a support team that they can consult with throughout the co-design process to say, oh, we've come up with this idea. Is that viable? You know, can you provide us feedback? And they can, you know, the whole co-design team can have that interaction with the organisation like that. It doesn't have to just be someone that's a representative. I think that in terms of bringing really senior people in because they can make a decision, Sometimes that's not going to work very well because of the imbalance of power yeah. and putting people with lived experience in a position where they yes. feel not all equal. Yeah, that they feel like their power. They're sitting in a room with someone that is a CEO while yeah. they are, you know, a seventy-two-year-old carer. So I think I think you just have to really be careful about who you bring into the room and really. The answer shouldn't be let's bring the CEO in so or the general manager so they can make the decision. The answer should be does the CEO and the general manager support this process and are they open-minded and willing yeah. to accept that people with experience know best about how to meet their needs? Yeah, and, and almost to the extent do you think that they've almost got to adopt if they, if they are open to the process, they then say, well, no matter what comes out, we're committing to or do you think there's still that opportunity where they get to put it through their lens after that to say, Oof, yes or no? I think you need to design that into the process. So co-design yeah. isn't a workshop. Co-design can be a series of workshops. It can happen gotcha. over time. It could iterations. It, it can be iterations. It, it can be uh, asynchronously. So you know you could have testing. You could do a mini pilot and get back people to, people together. We often do have like a support team and our advisory people who at certain points during the process we'll say to the co-design team, present your ideas, get feedback, have people ask questions and think about feasibility and then take that back into the design process and it's an opportunity for them to be challenged but also for them to challenge the status quo. It can take a lot of resources to get this done right, can't it? But it does It does take resource to get it right. And, and a good structure yeah. to make sure you're doing it in the right order. Yeah, that's right. It takes it. It's project management in particular yeah. and also recruitment. So recruiting yes. people with lived experience, especially in the mental health space where there's a high level of diversity and risk around participant care, recruitment's a really big thing to manage. And organisations can do it themselves rather than having an agency or a consultant support them, but only if they really already have a strong amount of trust and, and to some degree are already capable of sharing power and decision-making. Right. Otherwise, it's worth considering having an external, unbiased organisation support the process. Gotcha. Let's talk about capability uplift. What is that? And, yeah, tell our listeners a little bit about that, where that's heading. So when we're talking about mindset and we're thinking about capability, are you open-minded? Are you willing to right. believe that someone else might have an idea that different is different? Are you willing to be in the grey? So people, there's some people that don't actually like 
going through a process where things are ambiguous. They'd like to know what the answer is. They like to move forward with the answer. And it's, we talk about that ambiguity of not quite knowing yet like, and needing to work through the process to, to work out what's right and what's going to work. So there's a real, there's a real in, the, in the mindset space, I guess it's a way of, of being, of thinking. Sort of almost like, it. yeah, okay. So you're almost like when you get everyone together, you, you, have to, you have to set the scene as to what sort of lens everybody needs to look through this at to remain open that you're not coming in with your way and that's it, that this is, uh, yeah, that's right. this is a process. We need to be open. So you almost have to create that environment and yeah. set the tone at the start. Yeah, and within our teams, so our design teams will often create a social contract with people. So how are we going to behave and allow them ways to call out if they're feeling uncomfortable or and it's really right. important to build trust in the team so that yeah. you know you can start to see that. I think with the skills, there are some specific, really quite specific skills around co-design that you know you, you can't underestimate the time it takes to build a skill. So facilitation, being able to facilitate a room of people who might have diverse opinions, listening, and also what we call synthesis, but it's you know making sense of the data that comes out of. A discussion between nine people or they've worked on activities and being able to pull that together in a way that you can then progress and move forward also just designing activities that are creative and inclusive to get people to be able to generate ideas so there's some real skill in the design yeah. part of the co that goes beyond talking even moderating it yeah moderating as well so it's a real being able to moderate well in a way that makes people feel comfortable and mm. that they feel heard yeah, yeah and, and like you said, pulling the, all the ideas together in a way that sort of captives, captivates all everybody's input to try and reword things, rephrase things. Yeah, I mean, that would be a tough, tough position to be in. I think that's really skill where set. the skill set comes yeah. in, you know, and I, I guess that traditionally designers, you know, if you know the history, a short history of designers, you know, d designer could just design what they think is best. And then when you think about human-centred design, you're asking people what they would think best and you're interpreting that into a solution and maybe yes. then you test it with them. Co-design is giving over your seat as a designer to other people who don't have that training and you need to support them and help build that capability for them to work together and work through the process of design. And your job is to try really hard not to overlay your perception and your yeah. belief of what right looks like and, and your interpretation of that in design and just to be really true and genuine with what's occurred in the room. So it's, it's an interesting skill set for designers as well. I guess migrate through from maybe when they were at uni through to this kind of approach. So we get the mindset, sh mindset shift side of things, the capability uplift. What's that, how does that relate to people that are in this process? So one of the things that we've done with the department and that we, we, we've been doing now with a, a couple of other clients as well is, is I guess you could just think about it as, um, you know, if you're a learner, you start with a certain amount of knowledge or skill where you don't really know what you don't know and then you move through those steps of, you know, I know what I don't know and now I know what I know and then I, and now I know that quite well and I realise I don't know a lot again and then you, you keep going on that journey. So... We start with an assessment to evaluate people's mindsets and their skills and we get them to self-assess, like where are you at now and how yep. – and sometimes I guess people probably think they're more than they are without having necessarily gone through a co-design process yet. 
And then we're able to identify with them a few key moments where they can build capability. So whether that's through, you know, active listening, helping to develop a recruitment plan, helping to develop a safety and care plan for participants, participants, Mm -hmm. involving them in that synthesis process of bringing the ideas together. So it is very much a mentoring and support role that we play in trying to uplift capability. But if an organisation is going to shift to including people with lived experience in the design and implementation through co-delivery and co-evaluation, they do need those new those capabilities and taking that kind of learning and education type approach where you assess, you build, you reflect, you move forward is, is working. Well, it sounds like it is and it sounds like, like even just what you guys do is such a – like the skill involved in that would be – right, they'd be challenging. What, what's, what's some of the biggest challenges you've had? I think – at least in the big kind of government-based projects is you need to have a team that's – the team needs to be there from the beginning and they need to be consistent and they all need to build relationships together and have enough time for that. So obviously like a reform or most clients, most, most organisations have a deadline. They want something yep. done by a certain time and they have a certain amount of funding to do that. So it's sometimes hard for people to understand why you'd be like, you know, you can't change that team member halfway through or, you know, you do need to spend a bit of time just building relationships. So we yeah. factor for that as much as we can, but it's also within the balance of, you know, time and money and what you can never really can't compromise quality. So yes. it's quite, it's, it's always a balance. Yeah. I think recruitment. So, you know, the, the people you should have in the room should have the lived experience of the thing, the problem that you're trying to solve. And so finding those people is, can sometimes be challenging and it can take more time than you, you allowed for. So just really, I guess, allowing that time to find those people to onboard them well so they know what to expect and they know how to participate because you're not just asking for their opinion, you're actually asking them to, to help design. Yeah. So there's a fair expectation there. So I'd say that those two things are probably, and I'd say allow enough time. Yeah, because it's quite the process, especially if you're doing multiple workshops or meetings or whatever you, to make sure it's done right. That makes sense. Yeah, Karen, tell us about today and what you guys do, just in case there's people out there that don't know. So we're a strategic design agency and we're for purpose. So most of the work that we do, I'd say like 95% of the work we do is all purpose-based and, yes. and really tries to improve people's lives. So we solve problems. And we do that intentionally using design thinking methods, creative problem-solving methods, and we do research, so we listen to people, we involve people in pretty approaches like co-design, like I've talked about, to try and really generate or find those insights that can then help us to develop new solutions and we can then prototype those and, and build those. And that might be a new service or it could be a new digital product. So, for example, we working... We've been working with the Department of Health to design the new Park service, mm-hmm. which is the, the youth rehabilitation programs, the, the live-in services. We've been working with Smiling Mind to develop a, 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 a social and emotional well-being digital product for 9 to 12-year-olds. And so it's quite, it's quite broad-ranging, but I guess cool. if there's a problem, I can't say, yo, 
we'll fix it. <laughs> Let's check out the hook. Yeah, um, yeah, you can do that. MC. <laughs> no, I think it's 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 really it is that you know finding a way through a problem and doing that collaboratively with people to arrive at a solution, and then yeah. helping an organisation to implement that solution so that it can meet the needs of the people it's supposed to serve. Yes, and the DJ revolves it exactly. Okay, that's good. <laughs> So, so Karen, how if people want to get in touch with you, how can they do that? So, by email. So it's Karen at today dot design. That's easy. It's very easy. Listen, I think it's really fascinating, and and it's interesting the process that you undertake in order to help people arrive at that truly co-design, co-implementation, co-production of whatever it is that they're trying to achieve but to get everybody's voice at the table and truly make it meaningful where everyone feels like they're contributing and the outcomes you know for the organizations that you're doing it for i mean it must be really rewarding being part of that process and such a unique skill set yeah it is i love it and i think our team love it as well it's just really great to get up and solve problems that make people's lives better and I think it's also great to have such a range of clients that we get to work with the problems different types of problems we get to solve and and also we just have genuinely lovely people (laughs) that we work with and we just have a great team so that's probably the that's the biggest thing I guess yeah well it makes anybody happy if you get a great team of people doing some wonderful things that help people and improve people's lives so well done on that congratulations And thanks very much for having a chat with me and sharing your story with our listeners. Appreciate it. Thank you. Well, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Feel free to share with your friends and colleagues. And if you know someone working in mental health that you'd like to see featured on the podcast, please email any suggestions to us at membership at anzmh.asn.au. You can also stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you so much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next episode with you next week.